here on the spring break. Some of you guys are still waking up. Some of you are still here. We're glad that you're here. Some of you wore green today. I see that some of you um, others didn't. And uh, guess what? Green is St. Patrick's Day. It's actually today on a Sunday. Isn't that cool? And uh, St. Patrick's Day is all about leprechauns and rainbows and pot of gold at the end of the rainbow, right? Now, maybe some of you older people know what St. Patrick's Day is about. My father ingrained it into me. He loves St. Patrick's Day. He's actually sitting over here with his green sweater on. He's proud to celebrate St. Patrick's Day. And as believers, we should be proud to celebrate St. Patrick's Day. Some of you young people don't even know the story of St. Patrick or Patrick. 1,600 years ago, a man dedicated his life to proclaiming the gospel, resulting in tens of thousands of people coming to Christ. So yes, St. Patrick's Day is something worth celebrating. At the age of 18, Patrick was a slave. He was in Scotland. He lived in Scotland and became a slave in Ireland at 16 years old. He learned the Irish people's language. He learned their culture. He learned how to talk to them, and he learned their religion. He escaped slavery, and he ran back to his home, Scotland. And later it's said that the Lord called him back to Ireland. He knew the language, he knew the people to share with them about Christ because they didn't know Christ and he knew that. And so he goes back to Ireland proclaiming the gospel and tens of thousands of people coming back to Christ. Literally, the people that enslaved him were the people that he went back to, his enemies to share the gospel with. And so results of all of Ireland knowing Jesus is. What a story that is. We've we've kind of commercialized it and uh, made it worldly in, in our day, but let's not forget what it's about. So we're in our series, and we got two weeks left in our series. The next time we meet, uh, Mauricio is going to be preaching, but the time after that, we'll finish our series. And you don't want to miss that, because that's all about intermarriage and, and, and divorce and all of these things that are happening in Ezra, because Ezra is a prophet. He comes back to the people, and he brings the fire of the Word of God. And that's what we're going to be talking about today. We're introducing this character of Ezra. Who is this man and why did God have his hand upon him? To catch you up on the story, if you haven't been with us the past few weeks, God's people, their city of Jerusalem, the temple, the place where God dwells among his people has been destroyed. God sent the Babylonians to destroy the entire city, everything in it, nothing but rubble. And God has a plan to bring worship back to his people, to bring his people back, to restore the temple, to restore worship there so that he can send Christ, so that he can send Jesus to come on the earth and show us the way to ultimate worship 
to God. So after 70 years of exile, God sends the people back. He raises up a a pagan king, Cyrus the Persian, to send God's people back to Jerusalem to rebuild the city. And what they do when they get there, they build the altar. They begin sacrifices. They start in worship. They don't build the walls. They don't build the temple. They worship their God. Then they run into the struggle. And we all run into the struggle at times, right? 20 years it takes them to rebuild God's temple there in Jerusalem. God is faithful. He sends prophets, Haggai, Zechariah, and they encourage the people. And they tell of his promises. They tell of his steadfast love. And finally, the temple is completed. This is around 515 B.C. for you history buffs. The temple is completed then what happens between the temple being completed in chapter 6 and Ezra coming on the scene in chapter 7 is the book of Esther. Now, some of you may know this, but God raises up a woman of God to save God's people. Guess what? The Persian king is, is manipulated into trying to kill all of the Jews. Esther raises up and is bold and goes before the king to save God's people for such a time as this. You guys know that story of Esther and God saves his people from destruction. Then the king after Esther's king is Artaxerxes. I'm sure that Esther and the salvation of God's people had something to do with the sending of Ezra. 58 years later, after the temple is built, God sends a man armed with the Word of God to teach God's people what it looks like to do the Word of God. Not just to learn it, to also do it. And Ezra, let me tell you something, Ezra brings the fire. You thought my sermons were long? Ezra preached for six hours one time, reading the Word of God to the people. Nehemiah. Let's do that sometime, just not today, okay? Ezra chapter 7, and we're going to start at verse 6. So turn with me to Ezra chapter 7, and we'll begin at verse 6. I'll save you some, some names here. Telling of Ezra's line, the first five verses tell us that he was, the high, he was in the line of the priesthood the son of Aaron, the chief priest. Now, you can stand with us in the reading of God's word. It's on page 393, Ezra chapter 7, verse 6. This Ezra went up from Babylonia. He was a scribe skilled in the law of Moses that the Lord, the God of Israel, had given. And the king granted him all that he asked, for the hand of the Lord his God was on him. And there went up also to Jerusalem in the seventh year of Artaxerxes the king, some of the people of Israel, and some of the priests and Levites, the singers, the gatekeepers, and the temple servants. And Ezra came to Jerusalem in the fifth month, which was in the seventh year of the king. 
For on the first day of the first month, he began to go up to back from Babylonia. And on the first day of the fifth month, he came to Jerusalem for that good hand of his God was on him. For Ezra set his heart to study the law of the Lord and to do it and to teach his statutes and rules in Israel. The word of the Lord, you may be seated. So interesting what we can learn from this man. Let's, let's pray before we get started. Father, we thank you, Father, that we see you at work in your people throughout history. We see you raising up men and women of God to accomplish your will and your task. And Father, we pray right now, this morning, that you would raise up men and women of God that will do what you have called them to do, that will accomplish your will in this wicked world that we live in. Father, we pray for our hearts as a church, as a people of God, that we would have the heart of Ezra, people that will study and give our life to the Word of God and not only just study, but then we'll do it. And then we'll teach it. Father, give us a heart to yearn after the things that you yearn after, to love the things that you love, that we may be a people that pleases you. Revive us again that we may rejoice in our God. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. I don't know about you, but I have this phobia of holding newborn babies. I don't know what it is. It may be just because they're so fragile, they're so new. I've done it before, um, when people made me do it, right? But I had to be sitting down, had to have the, the right place. I had to be in my right arm. I had to, had to be on the sofa holding the, the head with the left, you know, in your sweet spot, right? And you're sitting down. So, so please, if, if I come to visit you in the hospital and you have a child, I'm, I'm just content looking at your newborn, praying over your newborn, touching your newborn and praying over them, but if you ask me to hold it, mama might have to get out of the bed and me have to sit there and hold the, hold the baby, okay? So I'll have to, have to get my sweet spot. But something happened to me on March 11th, 2012. We had our first child, Avery. She was such a beautiful peanut. You can see her on the screen there. That's how little she was. She's got her little animals that we bought for her. And by the time Trip came, we didn't even get animals for him, right? But I was shocked at how small she was. I could, I could hold her in the palm of my hand. And, and I didn't have a fear of dropping her for some reason because she, she was mine. She was so tiny. And March 11, 2014 came and Trip came. Let me put that on the screen. There he is. Yeah, that's him, right? He's hanging out. 
you know, as a dad or a mom, you just want to hold them in your arms underneath the palm of your hand. Because for the next several years of their life, you're going to be the one that's guiding, that's protecting them, showing them the way. You can put that next picture on the screen. This is a picture of me holding them in the palm of my hands right there. At the newborn. I think I have the exact same shirt on. It must have been St. Patrick's Day. But as they grow older, your hand really never leaves them, does it? You just encourage them, support them, help put them on the right path. And as I read about Ezra, as I read about this man and what he has done, there's a continuous theme throughout these two chapters. Because it says the hand of the Lord his God was on him. And, and I can't but help but think of, of the Lord God holding him in the palm of his hand. Moving Ezra to be the very instrument that God would use to return his people to him. You see, God was actually leading Ezra with power. It was the Lord that was doing all of the things that we're going to read about today and in these two chapters. It was God leading him to return to Jerusalem. It was God granting him favor with the king. For the king to give all of the money for the temple. It was the Lord who, who gave him the ability to set his heart on the word of God, to study, to do it, to teach it. It was the Lord that allowed him to, qual to find qualified men to serve and to work with him in the temple. It was the Lord who allowed him to be protected on his journey of five months from bandits and robbers while traveling with this huge bounty of the king's gold and silver. For the hand of the Lord was on him. Maybe easy for us to look at this passage and go, man, wow, what a man of God. What can I do to gain that kind of power? But the reality is the passage is not necessarily about how great Ezra is. The passage is about the gracious God and his steadfast love that he would have his hand on a man that would humble himself enough to be used by God See, in 1 Peter 5, 6, it says this, Humble yourself under the mighty hand of God that He may lift you up in due time. Mighty hand of God. Lord, let me see the mighty hand of God upon men and women in this room who will humble themselves to do extraordinary things works of God. That we have faith as a body of Christ. That we place ourselves in the palm of God's hand to be used for His glory. 
We started this year with a vision for 2019, and I feel like every single passage, I see it. Every single where, everywhere I'm preaching, I see this. Second Chronicles 7.14, If my people who are called by my name humble themselves and pray and seek my face, and turn from their wicked ways, then I will hear from heaven, forgive their sin, and heal their land. Let's look at the text this morning, Ezra chapter 7. I'm going to read again 6. This Ezra went up from Babylonia. He was a scribe skilled in the law of Moses that the Lord, the God of Israel, had given And the king granted him all that he asked, for the hand of the Lord his God was on him. And there went up also to Jerusalem in the seventh year of Artaxerxes the king, some of the people of Israel and some of the priests and the Levites, the singers, the gatekeeper, and the temple servants. And Ezra came to Jerusalem in the fifth month, which was in the seventh year of the king, for on the first day of the first month, He began to go up from Babylonia on the first day of the fifth month. He came to Jerusalem for the good hand of his God was on him. This first point talks about the hand of God. And I'm actually going to get this point from chapter 8, verse 22, because it talks about the hand of God. The point is the hand of God is upon those who seek him. The hand of God is upon those who seek him. This is what Ezra says at the end of his journey when he retells what he said to the king. He says this in Ezra 8.22, The hand of our God is for good on all who seek him, and the power of his wrath is against all who forsake him. The hand of God is for good on all who seek Him. The power of His wrath is against those who forsake Him. This is both encouraging and also very frightening. The very hand of God that causes Ezra to prosper is also the hand of God's wrath. God is spirit, so he literally does not have a hand. But the hand represents God's power at work. Either for good or pouring out God's wrath. I look through and there's many examples of God's hand pouring out God's wrath. One example is found in 1 Samuel. The Philistines actually take the Ark of the Covenant from the Israelites, the very place where God dwelt in the Holy of Holies, in the temple, and the hand of God pours out His wrath on the Philistines. Let me read it to you, 1 Samuel 5, 11. Then they sent therefore and gathered together all the lords of the Philistines and said, Send away the Ark of God of Israel and let it return to its own place that it may not kill us. And our people, for there was a deathly panic throughout the whole city. The hand of God was very heavy there. The men who did not die 
were struck with tumors, and the cry of the city went up to heaven. So people who did not worship God, did not know God, take the Ark of the Covenant, and God's hand is heavy in that place. Wrath of God is poured out. People are dying. People are having tumors. During the first great awakening, one of the most famous sermons was written by Jonathan Edwards, and he entitled the sermon, Sinners in the Hand of an Angry God. Jonathan Edwards was a uh, boring preacher. He sat down. He had a, uh, a thing in front of him in which he read, so he couldn't really even see the people. And he just literally read his sermon word for word in a monotone voice. And when he read this sermon, sinners in the hand of an angry God, people began weeping. People began wailing as a result of being convicted of their sin in need of a Savior, in need of the gospel. People again responding to repentance and faith in Christ. Here's an excerpt from the sermon. This that you have heard in the case of every one of you, that you are out of Christ. The world of misery, that lake of burning brimstone is extended abroad under you. There is a dreadful pit of glowing flames of the wrath of God. There is hell's wide gaping mouth open and you have nothing to stand upon nor anything to take hold of. There is nothing between you and hell but air. It is only the power and mere pleasure of God that holds you up. In this picture, he gives us a picture of us and our destiny below us, hell and God and his mere pleasure holding us up above hell and his grace, the hand of God rescuing us. Jesus says this about the hand of God. In John 10, 27, he said, My sheep hear my voice and I know them. They follow me. I give them eternal life and they will never perish and no one will snatch them out of my hand. My Father who has given them to me is greater than all and no one is able to snatch them out of my Father's hand. I and the Father are one. You see, that picture that Edwards produces is the hand of God literally holding us above the flames of hell. We deserve that. And yet Jesus says, I will rescue them by my power. And literally, no one will snatch them out of my hand. Once you are in the hand of Christ, you are in the hand of God himself. And he has saved you. 
is rescued us by his great power and his outstretched arm. And guess what? When Jesus ascended, when he left this world and went back into heaven, after he died on the cross and rose from the dead, proving who he said he was, guess what happened? He sat down at the right hand of God. The right hand of God. It reflects his power and his authority. In ancient times, a person with the highest rank stood at the king's right hand. Even today, some people call someone their right-hand man or their wingman. This is Jesus, the right hand of God. This is what it says in Ephesians chapter 1, verse 20, that he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at the right hand in heavenly places, far above all rule, authority, power, and dominion, and above every name that is named, not only in this age, but the one that is to come. And guess what? When Jesus died on the cross for sins, He said, it's finished. You are declared righteous because of me. And he sits down at the right hand of the Father with all the power and authority. And guess what he does at the right hand of the Father? He pleads on our behalf, Romans 8, 34. Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? As it is written, for your sake we are being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. No, in all things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death nor life nor angels nor rulers nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of Christ. The love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. So get this. The right, the hand of God is either for good of those who love Him, or it is for their wrath, God is pouring out his wrath of those that are against him. And Jesus sits at the right hand of God and he pleads for us. He pleads on our behalf. Do not pour out your hand of wrath upon my people. Pour out your hand of goodness and grace and mercy and salvation. That is what he's doing for us. The, the hand of God for his people. I, I can't. I can't even imagine the, the same hand that is upon Ezra. Jesus is saying, extend that hand to my people. Extend that hand to that young girl or young man who has received Christ. Extend that hand to the elderly man or woman in this congregation. Because their repentance and faith in me 
They are undeserving of God's good hand, and yet I have died for their sin. And guess what? The power that God gave to Ezra, because God extended his hand upon him, he now gives to us. Peter proclaims in the first sermon during Pentecost, Acts 2.33, being therefore exalted at the right hand of God, having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, He has poured out this that you yourselves are seeing and hearing. He sits at the right hand of God and He sends God's hand in the Holy Spirit, God with us. The power of God upon us to do the work in which God has called us to do. You see, the wrath of God was poured upon Christ when he was on the cross. And now he intercedes for us. He's given us the Holy Spirit to guide, to lead To direct us. So what does it look like for someone to have the hand of God upon them? What does it look like to be spirit-led? What does that look like? It looks like verse 10 right here. Look what it says. Ezra chapter 7 verse 10. For Ezra had set his heart to study the law of the Lord, to do it, and to teach his statutes to the word and rules in Israel. This is our second point. The word of God is that which we are to set our heart on. Guess what happens? When the God gives us the Holy Spirit, we have a hunger and a desire to know his word, to grow in his word, to go with his word, to reach people, to teach people about this great God. That's what he does. That is what he does with Ezra here. You see, the heart, the word heart in the Hebrew connotates the whole of one's being. As Ezra concentrated his whole life around the study of the word of God, not just the study, but to do it, to apply it, to live it out in his life. James 1.21, Therefore, get rid of all moral filth and the evil that is so prevalent and humbly accept the word planted in you which can save you. Do not merely listen to the word and so deceive yourself. Do what it says. Young people, you're going to have millions of distractions in your life. There's going to be millions of things in which people say this, do this, have this, go this, listen to this. Get rid of all moral filth and evil that is so prevalent and humbly accept the word that is planted in you. Humility, again, here. Some, some commentators believe that 
that um, Ezra memorized the whole Pentateuch, the whole law, the first five books of the Bible. And do you want a pattern for your life? Study the word, do it, then teach it. That's a great pattern. Are you saying, Rob, that everyone needs to be a teacher of the word of God? Yes, I am. You heard it correctly. In the Great Commission, God calls for his disciples to teach the commands of Christ. Teach your children, teach your co-workers, teach your spouse, teach whoever God puts in your path. Teach them the gospel. Teach them how to study the word of God. Teach them what it means to walk with Jesus. Disciple someone. Do you need to be a pastor to do that? No. God raises up ordinary men and women like Ezra every single day to do the work of the ministry where God has put them. You don't have to be a pastor to teach your children the word of God. You don't have to be a pastor to lead a Sunday school group. You don't have to be a pastor to start a Bible study in your workplace. You don't have to be a, a pastor to share the gospel with your neighbor. But faith does come from hearing. Hearing the word of Christ. How can someone hear unless we teach them? How can someone hear unless we tell them? The king even gets this. When he sends Ezra to the people, he understands he's not only sending this man, but he is sending the man who is rooted in the word of God. Ezra 7.14, we haven't read that yet, but look what it says. For you are sent by the king and his seven counselors to make inquiries about Jerusalem and Judah according to the law of your God, which is in your hand. Ezra, the word of God is in your hand. We're going to send you over to this place because you know this like the back of your foot. I don't even know what that means. Like the back of your hands. That's, that's, the, slang. that's the slogan I was looking for. It just didn't come out right. And you, Ezra, according to the wisdom of your God, this is verse 25 now, and you, Ezra, according to the wisdom of your God that is in your hand, appoint magistrates and judges who may judge all the people in the province beyond the river, all such as know the laws of your God, and those who do not do them you shall teach. The king is sending Ezra because he knows the word of God. He's sending Ezra with the wisdom of God in his hand. Literally. The king understands this. The Lord taught me this. Uh, this, was, this was one of the God moments in my life. I may have shared this before, but one of the most clear pictures to me when I was young was God speaking to me through his word, through Psalm chapter 1, verse 1. That if I was going to do anything with my life, that I had to love the Word of God. If I was going to do anything at all with my life, that I needed to know what it said. This is what it says in Psalm 1. Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, 
nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers. Basically, it's saying, don't be with those who are against the Lord. We'll talk about this next week. Don't be with those people, but his delight is in the law of the Lord, and on his law he meditates day and night. This is what he desires, not the wisdom of the world, not to be with the world's people, but to be with God. And what he says is like a tree planted by streams of water that yields its fruit in season, and its leaf does not wither. In all he does, he prospers. Men and women, you feel as if you're not prospering in your life. And again, God's definition of success is different than the world's definition, but you feel as if you're not prospering in life. Maybe we should check our heart to see if we delight in the things of God and in His Word. May we be a people who the hand of God is upon because we seek God. May God prosper us because we delight in the word so much that it becomes our life. Guess what Ezra does after he begins his journey? Before he begins his journey, he finds qualified men around him to serve in the temple. He gathers the people up and they begin this journey. But before they begin, I'm going to read in chapter 8, verse 21. I'm skipping through a lot, but we've got to look at this. Chapter 8, verse 21. Then I proclaimed a fast there. They're beginning their journey. They're beginning their, their time and going. And he's telling about this journey at the river Ahava. That we might humble ourselves before our God to seek him a safe journey for ourselves, our children, and all our goods, for I was ashamed to ask the king for a band of soldiers and horsemen to protect us against the enemy on our way, since we had told the king, the hand of our God is for good on all who seek him, and the power of his wrath is against all who forsake him. So we fasted and implored our God for this, and he listened to our entreaty. Guess what happens? They fast. They pray. They have all this money with them. They don't go to the king and go, hey, send us like lots of soldiers so that you can protect us. No, they ask their God for protection. And they arrive in Jerusalem. And they praise God for it. This is our third point this morning. God's people respond to the word of God faith and in action. God's people respond to the word of God that he's put in their hearts to faith and action. This is it. Ezra has an opportunity to live out his faith. He has been talking about this study that he has been studying since he was a little boy. He's been told the king about this word of God and the promises of God. And then he gets to a point in his life where he's like, okay, the king's about to give me all this gold and silver. And he's like, oh no, people are going to want to take it. This is a five-month journey. Someone is going to learn that I have tons of money with me and they're going to take our money. What do we do? 
We ask the king, help us. But we ask our God. Ezra humbles himself by fasting. That's what he does. He humbles himself. Look at verse 21. Then I proclaimed a fast there. That means he didn't eat food or drink at the river Ahava that we might humble ourselves before our God to seek him. To seek from him a safe journey for ourselves, our children, and our goods. Fasting. Fasting so that we can humble ourselves. Fasting is a form of humbling ourselves. That's what the text is telling us. Why? Because we're acknowledging our need for God. We are acknowledging that we love these physical pleasures, but we are saying, Lord, I need you more. I need you more than food. I need you more than drink. I need you more than this, whatever it may be that you fast from. I need you more. I long for you. Fill me. Put your hand upon me because I cannot do it myself. Next week, we will be handing out a 30-day prayer guide. 30-day prayer guide of coming to Easter. And guess what the prayer guide's about? It's all about praying for lost people. It gives a scripture and then a prayer. And you insert lost people's name into the prayer. Each one of you will get this we're literally going to pray for people to come to know Christ on Easter. Kyle did this in our uh, staff meeting this week. He said Easter is the one day of the year that if you invite people, they will come. So what he did in our staff meeting was tell us, say it with me. If you invite them, they will come. Say it with me. If you invite them, they will come. If you invite them, they will come. On Easter, the one day of the year, people are open to coming to church so that we can tell the gospel to them is this day. If you invite them, they will come. Pray for people to invite. Pray for people that they would know Christ fast, if you will, if you want to. And I can give you some tips through email what that looks like. But join me in prayer and, and sometimes even fasting for the spiritual awakening and empowerment of the Spirit, God's hand to be on our church. And as we see what Ezra did here, may we humble ourselves to be used by God. May God's hand rest upon his people. Let us pray. Father, we thank you that you 
that you give us your word, which is so powerful and tells us so much about who you are. And as we see this man, Ezra, and we see his life and what you did with him, and as next week as we study, as he begins to call to repentance, people of God, we we see ourselves, Father, our own hearts and our own wickedness. And yet, Father, humble us to realize that all we need is you. Nothing more, nothing less. Help us to place our faith and trust your promises that you promised Father we believe upon Christ that we will have salvation that we can no longer fear death we do not no longer fear the flames of hell because your hand holds us because of Christ's sacrifice upon the cross, because of your love for us, we now have life. And Father, we thank you that you have sent your Holy Spirit, placed your Holy Spirit in us, that your hand is upon us. Father, give us a heart to delight in your word, that we may do it and teach it. It may not be about us, but about your work. Father, we pray that you would raise up men and women in this room like Ezra. Do what you've called them to do where they are. there's anyone in this room that doesn't know you, we pray, Father, that you would speak to their heart and that they would humble themselves and say, I need Jesus. I need him to be the Lord of my life. I'm a sinner in need of a Savior. We pray that you would do that right now, that you would speak to people right now. We pray that you would speak to others as well. That you would raise them up. The altar is open for prayer. There'll be pastors here to talk to you if you need someone to talk to. Respond to the 